0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Caleb Wilkinson. Well, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's my joy to continue with you in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 4, verses 17 through 24 this morning. At the 1980 Winter Olympics, the U.S. hockey team defeated the long, decades-long reigning champions, the Soviet Union, as massive underdogs. Many people called it the miracle on ice. And the movie, appropriately named The Miracle, is a look at that journey. And it shows U.S. coach... Herb Brooks designed his team completely unconventionally. He cuts all the big all-stars because they never succeed with with all those big egos. And he selects a team that no one expects. But you quickly find out that this team has old baggage, old team rivalries and, 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 and bitterness toward their new teammates because of those old rivalries, and they too are just focused on themselves. One of Herb's main goals is to squeeze these old identities out of them by helping them embrace their new one. So from the first day on, he asks each of their players, he picks out individual players at practice, and he asks them three questions. He says, "Uh, what's your name, Uh, where are you from, and who do you play for? And practice after practice after practice, individuals fail the test. They keep giving their college team name, you know, Minnesota. That's probably a, a bad Minnesota accent, but Minnesota or Boston College or, or, uh, or Michigan or Uh, or or, or so on, okay? And the highlight of the whole movie is what happens when they play a warm-up sort of exhibition game very poorly, okay? They they weren't taking it seriously at all. Herb uh, during the game overhears his players talking about the girls in the stands. They're, They're completely distracted. So after the game, they're headed back to the locker room, and he tells them, get back on the ice. And he has them start doing hockey drills, like sprints or laps for for hockey players, he has them skate hard back and forth over and over again, and in between each drill, he confronts them over their work ethic. Can everyone's wondering what in the world is going on? The the arena is 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 shutting down. Literally, the lights are going out, and his assistant coaches think he's gone mad, or or like he's just being cruel to his players, and it just keeps going and going and. Finally, falling down in exhaustion, one player shouts out, My name is Mike Arruzzioni. I'm from Winthrop, Massachusetts. Which prompts Herb to ask the question, Who do you play for? And he said, Exhausted. I play for the United States of America. Herb looks at him and looks at all his players sternly. And he said, That's all, gentlemen. They're falling over, and he just says, that's all, gentlemen, and he walks off the ice. Okay, it was a hard lesson, but they got it. They already were on the team. They were already wearing the new uniform, but they needed to stop living like they did before they joined the team. They needed to remember who they were now. Not only their name and where they were from, but the uniform, the new uniform they wore now. They, They needed to embrace their new identity Okay, Team USA. Most of us in this room will never play hockey, uh, much more for an Olympic team. But our text this morning is going to put a similar claim on us as Christians, and even more profound and, and permanent. Okay, the rallying call from our text is this. Embrace the new you. Embrace the new you. We're going to read in Ephesians 4, God's work. And this is God's word to us this morning. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the fertility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, due to their hardness of heart. and true righteousness and holiness. Okay, the call here is to embrace the new you. And to do so, we need to we need to grip this two-part movement, okay? Out with the old and in with the new. Out with the old you and in with the new you, okay? So first we're going to discuss the old you, mainly the walk of the gentiles, and then we'll look at the new you, okay? How we've learned Christ. So first, out with the old you. Okay, our text starts with a weighty command from the Lord. It says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Okay, this idea of walk is super important in Paul's letter. He told us at the beginning of of this chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, he said, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, and he'll u- he'll keep using this walking metaphor uh, in, in chapter five, verse two, he calls us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. A few verses later in verse eight, walk as children of light, and then a few verses later, look carefully how you walk. okay so much of chapters four through six in Ephesians. Uh, it describes the walk Christians have as a result of their salvation and the new identity that, that chapters 1 through 3 presents. Christianity is not theoretical. It's not a bunch of truths and ideas in the clouds, and it's not merely about the future. It's about walking. It's about living right here on earth in this place for us December 5th, 2021, North Dallas, Texas. Okay, it's it's about living. And it's about this walk, this life looks a particular way. And Paul begins with what it doesn't look like. He says, don't live like this. It's out with the old. Now, to be clear, he isn't calling them to forsake their Gentile ethnicity. Okay, that's fixed. And he's just finished marveling at the good news that God's grace gloriously extends to Gentiles. Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Jesus. He's proclaimed, now you're Gentiles and you're saints. He's he's not demeaning their ethnicity. He's saying, you once lived one way, in line with an old identity. But now you must live a new way in line with your new identity. God's chosen people. And chapter 2 tells us of the glorious turn of events that happened. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Listen, in which you once walked following the course of this world. But now, but, 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 but in verse 10, I'll skip a few verses. In verse 10, we see the result of a great gospel transfer. Now were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, listen, that we should walk in them. Okay, so it's not that, it's not that the old religion was a walk and the new religion is about ideas and feelings merely. No, it's a walk, and and it's not that we cease to. It's not that they cease to be them and get absorbed in some divine soup, uh, like like lost like a drip of water in the ocean, like Eastern religion teaches. It's it's not that they're now identityless. They're given a new one. Okay, whatever they were before, they're new creatures. They're new creatures in Christ. God's workmanship repurposed for good works, okay? That they walk in them, okay? It's sort of like Paul saying, you play for a new team. Play like it. Out with the old way. Out with the old way you once lived. How did they used to live? Paul just loaded us up with descriptions of the Gentile walk. It's it 's characterized by fertility of their minds, darkened understanding, alienated from the life of God, ignorance, hardness of heart, callous, abandoned to sensuality, and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Okay, he, he begins here with their minds, he begins with the fertility of their minds, and he 's not saying that their minds are empty or void. They're, it's not that they're filled with nothing, it's that they're filled with things that lead to nothing, okay? They're, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. The, the mind is designed for something, but their minds are not achieving what they're meant to achieve, okay? A, a person may be very educated and say lots of true things, but if a mind that's made to glorify and enjoy God, is instead hostile to him instead, it leads to a dead-end street. A dead-end street. So listen, guys, every person uses their mind to find a way to the happiness they long for. And and Paul's saying the minds of Gentiles are headed in the wrong direction. They're going nowhere good, nowhere with the true deep lasting happiness that they seek. But if we follow Paul's argument closely, we see that the problem with the old Gentile walk really doesn't start with their minds. And it's made more clear when some of Paul's implied connector words are supplied, and we see his intended progression sort of in a more linear fashion. Okay, John Piper helped me here in his look at the book. I thought it might be helpful for you, so I'm going to put it up on the screen. Uh, the Gentile walk looks like this. This is kind of the logical flow. Okay, they're greedy to practice. I'm going to, I'm going to do this one. I'm supplying a word. They're greedy to practice. They walk uh, every kind of impurity. Because they have given themselves up to sensuality. Owing to the futility of their minds. Because... They are darkened in their understanding because they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardne- their hardness of heart. That is, they become callous. So a lot can be said here, but maybe what's most striking is that the deepest human problem is not ignorance. Okay, the bottom Of what's wrong with the old walk is hardness of heart. It's the same with everyone who doesn't know Jesus. Our our, our non-Christian family members and friends and neighbors, they don't reject Jesus just because they don't understand or because they're less intelligent than we are. They probably aren't. Sorry to inform you of that. They probably aren't less intelligent. The problem is mainly a moral reason. Okay, it begins with the heart, and it's hardness of heart that yields to ignorance, and it's ignorance and futility of mind that gives birth to sensuality, okay? Heart, and hardness of heart doesn't mean a heart without desires. The heart is a factory of desires, okay? Hardness of heart means that the heart doesn't produce desires for God. It's dead to God, And a heart that does not go to God for satisfaction will go somewhere else for it. It it goes to sensuality and greed or covetousness. Okay, In the vacuum of a godless heart, our, our hearts follow the desires of our bodies and our senses. They run to idolatry, which the New City Catechism says is looking to created things rather than the creator for our hope and our happiness our significance and security okay remember every every mind every heart in the world is searching desperately for happiness and when God is out of the picture we'll look somewhere else okay so this isn't merely an Ephesian problem this horrible description of what is what we were like before we were saved And even if you were saved as a young child, this was in our hearts. It's where our hearts would have taken us, but by the grace of God. Okay, Hard and dead hearts toward God is the deepest human problem. It's the North American problem. And it's the Latin American problem. It's the African problem. And it is the Asian problem. Does our world look much different from the ones the one the Ephesians lived in? Is it also not full of sensuality? Is it not filled with a desperate and often self-consumed search for hope and happiness in created things rather than the creator and often at the expense of our neighbors? Okay, we might find it in in, in socially accepted ways through family like marriage and, and children or through success at school or achievement in a sport or money and status garnered at work we might find it in nationalism or materialism or, or ministry or we might move to the more scandalous ways to find it through sexual fulfillment of various kinds or any host of other comforts and pleasures okay the world says go for it pursue your happiness in any any of it or in all of it and this makes complete sense with hearts dead to god and thus ignorant of God. People are acting like there is no God because their hearts are dead toward God. They're ignorant of him. It makes complete sense. So what has to happen for this hardness of heart, this deadness to God, to change? And the answer is nothing short of a miracle. And Paul already described this miracle in chapter 2. He said this. He said, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved okay god has to intervene he it's him that has to save when the ephesians hearts were callous toward him he made them alive with jesus because of his great love and it's the same for us he transferred us from one identity to another from being dead to god to being alive to God and thus moved us from one walk to another. Many rescue missions have a room where addicts who have not maybe bathed in months get to strip off their old clothes and they're thoroughly bathed and disinfected and the the unsalvageable clothes are thrown away or, or burned and the new clothes are issued. And the cleanup person is given new clean clothes with the assumption that they'll no longer wear the old ones. God's telling us the same this morning. He says, don't walk like you used to. You were cleansed. Your old clothes are gone and the old way of life has gone with it. You were dead. Now you're alive. So embrace the new you. Okay, Out with the old you and in with the new you. Embrace the new you. Okay, in with the new you. Let's, let's look at this new you now. Okay, the Gentiles walk is dead to God. Verse 20 says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Okay. Something radical happened. They learned Christ. What does that mean? What does learning a person mean? What does learning Christ mean? Well, it's key just to read the whole letter because the context before tells us, okay, chapter. Two verses 17 through 19 said that Christ came and preached peace to them who were far off who were once alienated from God and his people okay through the good news mainly the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Jesus himself the king of the universe came to them people individuals with hearts that were hard toward him and alienated from him and he preached a message of peace that in him, they now have access to God, the real source of all, the, all their longings for happiness that they were seeking through sensuality. Okay, they're, they're brought to God because now they're his. And chapter 3 says that this means that they're loved with a height and a breadth and a depth beyond Their imagination. They won't be able to comprehend it. A new identity is given to them. They're his. And the following verses give us the big picture of what our participation in this new identity entails. Okay, so please read with me uh, starting in verse 20 again. I'm going to pause in the middle to point something out. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus okay pause here Paul's assuming what follows has already happened since they learned Christ okay so what's happened I'm going to keep reading three things have happened they've been taught to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And pay, pay, please pay attention here. Paul is not calling the Ephesian church to put off the old self and put on the new self here. He's saying, if you're a Christian, you've already done this. This is a past event. To put trust Jesus means you put off the old self and the new self and, and put on the new self. And that's what baptism symbolizes and and celebrates. Uh, Karen and and Jim and Morgan just reenacted their new story. They publicly proclaimed a new identity already received in Christ. They testified, I was buried with Jesus into death. I, I put off the old self. And in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, I too might walk in newness of life. I put on the new self. They they went public. They said, y'all need to know it. There's a new me. I belong to Jesus now. Paul gives us a different picture of what it looks like, uh, what what it looked like when our salvation took place, but no less vivid than, uh, than baptism. It's like stripping off old clothes and putting on new ones, okay? But he doesn't just say that we took off a dirty shirt and put on a clean one, like at the rescue mission. We put on a new human being. A new human being. This is profound. What happens at salvation isn't us merely covering up what we really are, it's taking off who we were, the old you, and putting on an entirely new person. The new you, recreated and repurposed by God. And notice this about the clothing picture this isn't a private event. Our clothing is visible. Think uniforms, okay? They're public. When we're at the hospital, we know who the doctors and the nurses are based off of the uniforms we wear. When we're walking around town, we can say, that's a police officer. They're visible. Uniforms are are, are visible. If you're on a sports team or in an army, it's vital your team or side is visible, okay? And, and, as it is with new clothes, the assumption is that when you receive this new identity, you go public with it. Okay, that, that's, that's exactly what baptism aims to do. And church membership does much of the same thing. It's going public with the new you. And so I, I, I'm so grateful we get to witness both of these together this morning. It's, it's really God's perfect timing for this text. Okay, notice one more thing, though, about uh, this, this clothing, this putting off and putting on new clothes picture. It, it's such a deep image, okay? Because we're not told to knit new garments for ourselves. We're not called to find a new you or create a new you. If you're a Christian, you are a new you. You're a new person. When you trusted Jesus, you put him on. Now he's your life. And I understand that maybe maybe comprehending... Being so associated with Jesus that you, that you share his life, holiness, and reputation may not sound all that satisfying to you. But but think about what putting Jesus on entails. Okay? It means that all that's his is now yours. And what makes this especially great is that God the Father loves you with the same love that he loves Jesus with. Okay, author and counselor Ed Welch describes it with his own story. He says, my parents were not able to attend my wedding. They hadn't even been able to meet my wife before we were married. A month after we were married, Sherry and I traveled by plane to spend time with them. In those days, family and friends were able to greet you at the gate. So we expected they would be there when we got off the plane. Not only were my parents there, but also 20 other family members and friends, none who had met my wife. What I didn't expect was that the crowd was more interested in Sherry than me. I hadn't seen any of them in a year, but they wanted to meet her. She was surrounded by people she had never met, hugging her, kissing her, and saying how much they loved her. I knew the reason they loved her so much was because they loved me so much. I couldn't have been happier to be briefly ignored. My parents loved me, so they loved her. It was all very simple. Okay, you're his, Jesus's, you're loved. And Jesus, you don't need to achieve an identity. You've received one with him. You, you still may feel unlovable, but you can even begrudgingly admit that you're loved. Regardless of all your inadequacies and regrets and, and shame, the father loves his son, Jesus. And you're so tied to him, the father indeed loves you. And he always will. You always will. Church, Christianity is radically different from all other worldviews. It's the only identity that we receive and that's not achieved, okay? Our identity is given to us from the outside, not found or achieved from inside of us. Okay, this, this is amazing news in a land obsessed with choose your own identity. The, cho- the choose-your-own-identity dogma claims that no one or nothing outside of you can tell you who you are. You must discover or create who you are, then maintain this identity. Okay, choose-your-own-identity is the cultural theme. And then it's all about you do you. And initially, really, seriously, initially, this sounds beautiful and appealing because none of us want to be kept away from our deepest longings and satisfaction we all want to be happy but it's a good time to, to pause and ask this question how is this cultural endeavor like really going how is it doing it getting us here like really it's not really going so well choose your own identity's accent on unlimited freedom often just leaves us paralyzed the weight of limitless choices is massive, and that's one reason why anxiety and depression are higher today than they've ever been. And it's not just choosing your own identity that brings the pressure, it's adhering to it. Okay, if, if you do manage to choose an identity, great, good job. Now all you have to do is maintain it every day for the rest of your life. I talk about pressure and anxiety. And further, having all these choices for an identity actually just makes us more discontent. Okay, our, our culture, it sticks us in a shopping mall of identities where it's impossible not to wonder if you chose the right one. Because after all, you're free and you chose and you can always re-choose if you want to. So our, our culture treats identity like a giant table filled with Legos that we must pick how to configure and, and reconfigure if we want to and so the comparison temptation is up to the sky and comparison is the enemy of gratitude and contentment okay so with choices for identity comes discontentment with identity and what we what what, what do we do with god when with this choose your own identity dogma how, how does that make us view god at the very best, it puts them on the sideline as the stagehand to the story we're writing and starring in. Okay, And at worst, it puts them in this, as this outside authority, this antagonist, getting in the way of the fairy tale we want to write for ourselves. And church, contrary to what our culture tells us, there's no such thing as absolute, as, as absolute freedom. The freedom, choose your own identity, promises is a lie, and embracing it actually robs you of the freedom it promises. Okay, take Princess Elsa in the Frozen, for example. Have you guys ever? Well, we, we we listen to it in the house, and I do that, but I uh, our girls love it. I hope there's there's some small girls in here. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, but have you ever thought about how ironic that song is? Let it go. Uh, let it go. It's a hit song, but Elsa's singing about her choice to be free while throwing herself into solitary confinement. Like she's singing, I'm free, while creating an ice prison and ensuring she won't be free, okay? There's no such thing as absolute freedom. Someone or something will rule us, even and maybe especially an identity we choose for ourselves, okay? Something will rule you, And since the walk of the Gentiles is one of hardness of heart towards God, they're left to choose anyone or anything except God. But if you're a Christian, you're free from playing this game. You have a solid identity. You already belong to Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. Listen, make no mistake. He comes to us as king. He will rule us, but he alone rules us with love and grace. So out with the old and in with the new. Embrace the new you. Not not an achieved new you, but a received new you. Given to you by God in Jesus and loved by him always. Now before we end, notice this. I I feel like I wouldn't do uh, this text justice if I didn't mention this. Notice that sandwiched between these two past events put off and put on, is another part of, that Paul assumes we've learned with Jesus, okay? To be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Inherent embracing and embracing the new you is a life of active and continuous participation. Okay, our text doesn't say much about this. Um, it's actually coming, in, uh, the, the remainder of the chapter is going to be filled with pragmatic application. Uh, but the most important thing to see is, that this renewal comes from our new identity. We're going to be getting lots of specific commands in the rest of the letter, but everything we're called to comes from who we are. And if we don't get this right, if we don't get who we are comes before what we do, if we don't get that right, we'll be in great danger of trying to gain acceptance from God by pursuing holiness. And in so doing, denying Jesus even as we, Seek to obey him. Okay, the gospel is that on the basis of Jesus, we're already 100% accepted, not, not 99%. And so we need to get this, we need to get this even as we seek to discover our place in God's mission as a church this year, okay? Because this isn't, what, this isn't more of the cultural theme we're trying to propagate, it's embracing who we are and then walking it out faithfully. Okay, and something else about this renewing is implied in the two natures of. Uh, the selves the two selves the old self is not just dead it's decaying okay it's it's rotting like a dead tree standing it's crumbling but the new lie the new self is living which means it's growing okay and a living tree is by nature in a state of renewal and the new self is the same it says it says this it says the new self is created after the likeness of god and true righteousness and holiness which means we'll be growing in two directions primarily righteousness, and holiness. Okay, Commentators think that righteousness corresponds to our love for our neighbors, and holiness corresponds to our love for our God. So we're going to be growing with this new self put on. We're going to be growing in loving God and, and loving people. There's going to be specific work and participation, but maybe the most obvious is this, to remember who we already are as new, recreated people. And two, to spend time with God and spend time with people. Okay, it's hard to grow in our love for God and to love others if we're not spending time with them. Okay, spending time with God and the truth of his word reminds us of who he is and what he's done for us and thus who we are. And with prayer, it's crucial to our ongoing renewal. And so is being engaged with people. The renewing of our minds is bringing our behavior with God and with others into conformity with our true identity in Christ over time, okay? It's growing into the uniforms we're already wearing, kind of like in the movie, The Miracle. Now, if you're pressing into this, we sort of end here, but the band would come back up. We're winding down here. Um, If you're pressing into this, you may be feeling discouraged or, or hopeless. You're Here and you want to grow and embrace this identity, but you might feel stuck in a particular sin, or you feel impatient with your progress. You even suffer greatly with a battle of assurance that you are God's dearly loved child. But listen, listen, no matter what it may look like, you're in good company. You're in good company in this church, and you're in good company in the the larger historical church. Okay, I, I think John Newton, the former slave trader who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, describes the new life of renewal well. And hopefully you can. it resonates with you. He says, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but I thank God that I'm not what I used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. None of us are what we ought to be or what we want to be or what we will be. But by the grace of God, we are what we are. And if you love God or even if you just want to love God, that's a good indicator that you're no longer your old self that had a hard heart toward him. If This isn't you. We're glad you're here. And we want you to know that your story is not over yet. God's arm is not too short to save you. The very reason you're here may be that God's grace is grabbing hold of you this morning, calling you to receive the new identity he's purchased for you on the cross. So please, please consider his invitation. But if you can sing the words of the song we're going to sing together as your own, rejoice because you don't need to choose your identity. You've already received one. You're God's your love beyond your imagination already. So, by His grace and power, embrace the new you. And let's do that as we sing. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.